Hey, everybody, this is Brian Zond. Welcome to my sermon podcast. Now, before we get into the sermon, though, I want to tell you that I have a live in-person prayer school coming up Friday night, Saturday morning, November 3rd and 4th. So if you can be with us, we would love to have you for prayer school in the upper room right here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, Friday night, Saturday morning, November 3rd and 4th. And then if you want, you can stay around for Sunday. That's our anniversary Sunday. We're celebrating 42 years here at Word of Life. So to register, it's it's registration for a donation of any amount. Go to wolc.com slash prayer school for the in-person prayer school November 3rd and 4th. To open the sermon, I would like to read a passage from the preacher in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This morning's sermon is entitled, Beautiful in Time. And Pastor Derek just shared that we have just returned from our Colorado mountain retreat where we held our retreat at the High Peak Camp and Conference Center in Estes Park, Colorado, at the base of Long's Peak. I've summited Long's Peak four times. I've spent the last couple years there at camps and retreats. And Long's Peak has a look. Did you know that? Like Long's Peak is a mountain that has a look. Here's Long's Peak. Like Post Malone has a look, you know what I mean? Like, okay, Long's Peak has a look. What face tattoos are to Post Malone, (laughs) the diamond face is to Long's Peak. Long's Peak has a look, and and you can kind of see it there. You can see the diamond face. The face of Long's Peak makes this diamond, and it looks like, you know, a traditional mountain with a, a sharp summit, a peak there at the top. It's beautiful mountain. It's breathtaking. In person, it's just magnificent. But when we drove this week up to the Alpine Visitor Center in Rocky Mountain National Park, we we took the dirt road, Fall River Road, and then we came down the paved road, Trail Ridge Road. And while we were in the car, Aaron pointed out to me, hey, look, there's Long's Peak from a different perspective. That's the same mountain from the other side. The summit doesn't look like a peak, but rather a large plateau, which it is. It's like the size of a couple football fields up there. It's pretty impressive. Same mountain, different perspectives. And this illustration of multifaceted perspectives has often been used to describe our own journey of discovering God. For many of us, we've experienced this. We grow up, and for much of our life, we have in essence, a certain perspective of God, maybe even widely accepted, the popular perspective of God, and then something in our life moves us, calls us. A catalyst moment happens where we go on a journey around the mountain, and it brings us to a different place in life where now we see God from a different perspective. And we start to understand God in a new way. Same God, different perspective. 
God does not change. Can I get an amen? But we, we journey through life and become aware that there is more than one understanding of God, who God is, what God is like, what God is doing, and what God has done. In fact, I might propose this morning that there are infinite facets of God to explore because God is infinite. This is what some people spend their life doing. And it's a beautiful journey, the journey of discovering God. This morning, I believe that the same is true of salvation. The salvation work of God is what I want to talk about this morning. And I believe there are multiple facets of salvation. In fact, we confess every Sunday before coming to the table of the Lord, the Apostles' Creed. And in the Creed, we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and I believe that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there is salvation. Can I get an amen? amen. But how does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus save the world? Depends on what side of the mountain you're on. Depends on how we look at it, how we talk about it, how we understand it, and it may change over the course of our life. How many have experienced that is true this morning? This morning, I would like to talk about and explore the salvation of God as the act of making all things beautiful. I was walking through the grocery store a couple weeks ago, and I got a phone call from my mom. How many of you know when your mom calls, you answer? <laughs> In the middle of the vitamin aisle at Natural Grocers or not, you answer. And so there I was running errands, picking up some vitamins for the kiddos, and my mom calls, and what was going to be a quick trip to the grocery store turned into a long phone call in the middle of the vitamin aisle at the grocery store. This is beautiful to me because there was a season in my life where my mom and I didn't really talk at all when I was a teenager, and so I cherished these phone calls with her. There was also a season in my mother's life where she had lost her faith, that she had long walked away from God. And so this conversation was particularly beautiful. You see, I come from what we call a broken home. Yep. So at 10 years old, my parents divorced. And beyond just my, my nuclear family, my mom and dad's divorce, my family is pretty unique and diverse uh, in general. As, as I say, when you look at my family tree, it would be best to take the tree up out of the ground, turn it upside down and look at the roots because that would be a better description of what our family tree looks like. It's a bit complicated, confused, kind of messy, right? And so we've got lots of half siblings and step siblings. And my mother and I, we, we have this, uh, we were talking about our family and we were talking about how my stepsister from my dad's current marriage of, I think, 18 years, praise the Lord, to my stepmother, who is way out of his league, by the way. Uh, <laughs> he married up. She's a saint. If you're listening, stepmom, I love you. Um, and we were talking about with my mom, how my stepsister from my dad's marriage comes over to her house with my sister and how she has the greatest time and just loves her as her own daughter. 
And then we began to talk about how our whole broken family has become so beautiful. That while there's a big, messy, long history to our family story, in the end now, it's beautiful and how much we love and cherish everyone, despite the painful past. And in this moment in the grocery store, talking with my mother about how God has worked in the midst of our brokenness and pain to bring about beauty, I had this kind of epiphany. Not the head knowledge. I could get up here and preach a sermon on God making things beautiful, but you know when something hits your heart, your soul, your very being, it's an epiphany moment, an ah, whoa, I see clearly that what God is doing to save the world is making broken things beautiful. This is the essence of what God is up to in the work of salvation. It reminds me of kintsugi. Do you know kintsugi? The Japanese art of taking broken pottery and instead of throwing the pottery out, the pottery is redeemed and restored and made beautiful. But the brokenness of that pottery is not disguised or covered over. In fact, it's enhanced with plaster laid in with gold leaf so that now the pottery is different than it was before it was broken. But one could say now it is even more beautiful than it was before it experienced that broken moment. I think it's a good picture for us to keep in mind this morning as we talk about the salvation of God as making all things beautiful. At the center of our gospel, our good news, is the crucifixion of our Lord. And while the cross, we have many of them here, the cross there on the wall, the crucifixion here on the platform, the cross in the upper room, a lot of crosses in the upper room. The cross for us has become a symbol, a sign of beauty and grace. When we gaze upon the cross, we, we see something beautiful, something grace-filled. In fact, any, any jewelry store you walk into, in, in the U.S. at least, is bound to carry some form of jewelry that has a cross. We wear it as a sign of beauty and grace. But I want to say that the cross and crucifixion was absolutely grotesque. It was horrendous, abhorrent. The ugliness of the crucifixion and cross was used as a scare tactic by the Roman Empire to keep the people in check to enforce their Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. In other words, hey folks, get in line or else. This is your end. And the crucifixion would always occur in a public space, usually on the busiest highway into the city, so that people would be reminded those who, who sin against the Roman Empire, who commit a crime, will be treated in this way, so get in line. The crucifixion reveals how ugly we can be when you think about it. That there is a system that perpetuates the public torture, humiliation, and execution of another human being. Despite how bad the crime may be, this brings a reality check for us on how far we as humans can fall from grace. In the dehumanizing act of crucifixion, even those who enact and enforce such a grotesque form of punishment in the name of a false peace are themselves dehumanized. I believe that it's to do such a thing to another human being, to strip them of their humanity, strips you of your humanity. 
And it's just ugly. It is the pinnacle of ugliness when we think about our human society, the human experience. And yet, the crucifixion, the cross, is the very place where God brings the beauty of salvation to the world. This place of abhorrent, grotesque ugliness is the very place that God brings the beauty of salvation to the world. See, we see the cross, the crucifixion. When I worship, I often gaze upon this crucifixion and I think about the grace of God, the mercy of God, the beauty of love unconditionally given for the world. I think about love of enemy. I think about the words of Jesus spoken from the cross, from his place of pain. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think about Jesus giving John to his mother, giving us to one another as family from the cross. I think about all of the beauty at the cross. But did you know that it took hundreds of years for Christians to be able to gaze upon the cross and the crucifixion as a symbol of beauty? It would take generations of Christians being removed from the actual act of public crucifixion in the Roman Empire for them to embrace the cross and crucifixion as a symbol and sign of grace. By the fourth, fifth, sixth century, we see the cross and icons and Christian art as a sign of worship and beauty. But before then, it was just too grotesque, too ugly to gaze upon and think about the beautiful salvation of God. Often Christians would instead use like a fish as a symbol, an anchor as a symbol, but never the cross. Our pastor has a new book coming out at the beginning of next year, The Wood Between the Worlds, A Poetic Theology of the Cross, and I got a copy. Yeah, I got a pre-published manuscripts with all the spelling errors and grammar errors. I started pointing them out to Perry. She's like, yeah, we know that's already been fixed. <laughs> okay, I'll just read it then. Here's a quote from, and I got permission to share this, by the way, uh, from Pastor Brian in his upcoming book, The Wood Between the Worlds. This is so good. The transformation of the Roman cross from an abhorrent symbol of death into a beautiful symbol of love is a testament to the redeeming power of Christ. If the cross can be saved, the world can be saved. If the crucifixion can be made beautiful, all things can be made beautiful. The hope we have for the healing of a world marred by sin and death is that God makes all things beautiful in his time. It's beautiful, amen? If the cross can be saved, the world can be saved. If the crucifixion can be made beautiful, all things can be made beautiful. It carries good news to us. It's as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, God has made everything beautiful in his time. God has made everything beautiful in his time. It reminds me of Romans 8:28, And God will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, I'm not here to treat your suffering lightly. I'm not here to simply be dismissive of pain and sorrow, of tragedy, of loss, of grief. 
I understand I'm an Enneagram 7, and by nature, I can be very dismissive of pain. I naturally want to live in a bubble where in my bubble, it is only good vibes. Have you seen those shirts? Good vibes only shirts. You know what I'm talking about? Good vibes only. Honestly, that's my default. And if I'm obnoxiously positive and you're annoyed by that, know that it's my true self, <laughs> that I'm really that, that positive. Ask Megan. She like rolls her eyes at me half the time. Like, would you get real? Come on. So in following Christ and being formed by Christ and being formed by the gospel of the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I know that we must go through the darkness of night if we are to experience the light of dawn. That we must go through the way of the cross if we are to experience resurrection life. And so whether I like it or not, life, the experience of being human, will have pain and sorrow, loss and grief. And so I am not here to be dismissive of pain and sorrow. I want to point out that in Romans 8:28, it says, therefore God works all things together for good. Not simply, oh, God will just make the bad good and it'll be okay. No, there is work to be done to go from experiencing pain and sorrow to seeing that moment in life, that season of life, as a gift of beauty and grace, there is work to attend to. It is the work that was done on the cross to make pain and suffering, sorrow and loss, even ugliness and evil, beautiful. That the cross redeems our sin and now becomes not a place where the worst sins of humanity were sinned into the Son of God, but rather where the Son of God gifted us with unconditional forgiveness for those sins. It is the work of God to make all things work together for good. The work of the cross, the work of God entering our pain, our sorrow, the work of journeying through the darkness to arrive at the dawn. Amen. And this work takes time. As we journey through life with God, we are given the gift of time. Have you ever noticed that? That with time, there comes healing? I think this is a gift from God. That as we look back at our season of pain and sorrow and loss, we often experience a gift of perspective. Maybe it wasn't all Loss. Maybe there were some things to gain. In the loss of a loved one, my experience has been that there is the gift of memory, especially childhood memories. I lost my aunt not long ago, very early in life to cancer, and I was very close with her. And in my adult life, I had moved to Missouri from Georgia, and in being at her bedside as she took her last breath, my mind was flooded with childhood memories of joy. Have you experienced that before in losing a loved one? You just, your mind is flooded with memories you thought you had forgotten. And there they are as real as they were the day you lived them. It's the gift in the midst of the loss. Or maybe you gain a new perspective in your grief of the person that you loved and the things that you used to hold disdain against them for, you've now let them go and you just cling to the gift that they were in your life. 
Or maybe you have a loved one or you yourself are diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. And all of a sudden, you make the decision, you know, I think it's time to retire. I'm tired of spending my life doing things that don't matter. And you start saying yes to every vacation and trip and phone call with the loved ones that you hold close. All of a sudden, you realize that life is a precious gift, more precious than you could have imagined. I've experienced this in my own family. And for me, I remember being 11 years old, a year after my parents divorced, and I had cried myself to sleep every night for a year. And at 11 years old, you wouldn't think you could experience pain and sorrow, but my, I was broken. This is my honest testimony. And there I was, I remember right where I was, laying in the top bunk of my bunk beds in my room, and I would cry and cry. And I, and I cried. I said, God, I'm done. I was raised in the church. I just cried out, I'm done. Like Eugene Peterson writes in the Beatitudes, his translation, blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more room for God and his work in your life. That was me. I was at the end of my rope and I cried out, even as an 11-year-old, an authentic cry of sorrow. I'm done. I'm emotionally spent. I'm lost. I, I, I can't do this anymore. My, my mom was struggling with substance abuse. My dad was, had turned to work, just to work all the time. And I was left to raise my little sister, it felt like, at 11 years old. And I was just done. And it was in that moment that I experienced the gift of a tangible sense of the love of God. I felt like the love of God descended like a heavy, warm blanket on a cold winter night. And I heard the words of God whisper in my heart, I will never leave you or forsake you. And it is that moment, that beautiful moment, that has put me on the trajectory in life of faithfulness to Jesus no matter what. My life has been a response. Jesus said to me in that moment of pain, I will never leave you or forsake you. And my response for the rest of my life has been, Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, have I failed? Yes, of course but the journey continues. And my journey started in the place of pain and sorrow. And I thank God for it, which is so strange. I thank God for it. I used to regret it. I used to wish it away. And now in a strange embrace, I see God's work in my life to redeem my pain and sorrow and to make something beautiful happen. I wanna close my sermon this morning by telling you another story. It's the story that inspired this sermon, the story of St. John of the Cross. He wrote several poems. In fact, he's the patron saint of Spanish poetry. He's considered by some to be Spain's greatest poet. And maybe most famously, he authored the book, The Dark Night of the Soul. I want to tell you how St. John of the Cross wrote his first published poem, The Spiritual Canticle. He was born in the 16th century. It seemed like a lot happened in the 16th century. A lot was going on. There was a lot of saints that we talk about during that time frame. He was a contemporary to St. Teresa of Avila. And I have to tell St. Teresa's story just a little bit to get to St. John's story. So are you ready for story time with Pastor Jacob? All right, here we go. It's kind of fun to learn new things. St. Teresa belonged to the Carmelite order. Now, the Carmelite order 
began some 300 years before in the 12th century with a group of hermits who lived in the caves and huts in the slopes of Mount Carmel. That's where the Carmelite order began, the life of simplicity. And now, 200 years later, at the time of St. Teresa, the Carmelite rule had changed. In fact, in the monasteries and convents that were a part of the Carmelite order, you would find hundreds of people living in these monasteries and convents. Silence and solitude was not practiced because there was no solitude. It was full of people. In fact, in St. Teresa's convent, the convent of the Incarnation in Avila, Spain, there were 200 people who lived in that convent. And in those convents, the wealthiest nuns had suites with rooms for their family and their servants. Not what you think of when you think about the monastic life, the life of simplicity and poverty. It was very different than what we would expect. And so it was in the midst of this condition in the Carmelite order that St. Teresa was inspired by the founders, those hermits who lived in simplicity in caves and huts, spending their life in prayer and the practices of silence and solitude that she began to talk of reform. She wanted to change the way that Carmelites lived their life. And so she began a reform called the discalced reform. In other words, they wouldn't wear shoes. That the discalced nuns, they prided themselves on not wearing shoes. And so now you have the discalced Carmelites and the scalced Carmelites. <laughs> those who wore shoes and those who did not wear shoes. It was easy to tell which, which order you were a part of, right? Which denomination? It's kind of like, well, you've got evangelicals and you've got Catholics. It's easy to tell which church you're in, right? Not hard to tell the difference. That's how it was in that day. And it went on for 10 years, this, this reform movement. In fact, uh, St. Teresa started 15 convents successfully that housed at most 12 nuns. That's the most she wanted in a, in a convent, a life of simplicity and dedication to prayer and the practices of silence and solitude. She saw how Jesus was working through these 15 convents and she thought, well, if we have convents for nuns, we have to have monasteries for monks. The men need to get on, in on this. So she needed to find some friars, not for French fries, but like to lead the monastery, okay? And so she encountered St. John of the Cross. She was 52, he was 25. It's like divine providence, 5225. They met and oh, they became companions for one another. And for 10 years, they led this reform movement until as the movement grew, so did disdain for their movement. And in that day, monasteries and monks and orders had their own judicial system. They even had their own armed police and prisons in the monasteries. Strange, right? Not what we would think of. An edict was drafted opposing the reformed Carmelite movement that St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila were leading, making St. John a criminal and his works, his teachings, illegal. One day in 1567, or 1577, on December 2nd, during Advent, men broke into the residence of St. John of the Cross, bound him and blindfolded him, and took him south to Toledo, Spain, to a monastery where they beat him continuously, demanding that he recant 
his works within the reform movement, that he take back his words and that he renounce the reformed movement. And of course he said no. Over and over they beat him until they put him in prison with extreme abuse, deprivation. They only gave him water and bread and the occasional sardine to eat. For two months, they wouldn't let him bathe or change his clothes. They enacted what they called circular discipline where monks would take turns flogging him. And then they put him in solitary confinement in a cell that just had a slit in the wall for light and air. And there he spent nine months in a monastery, abused in the church. St. John of the Cross suffered his dark night of the soul. And it's in that darkness and isolation, suffering and justice and illness and sickness in his body that he began to compose beautiful poetry. He had nothing to write with, so he would memorize it. His first poem, The Spiritual Canticle, is 40 stanzas long. It's essentially a short book. He memorized it day after day. He would write and memorize, write and memorize until a compassionate guard, one of the guards was compassionate enough to give him writing materials, would even take him out of his cell to see the sun every once in a while. St. John of the Cross then worked and worked to loosen the screws of his door and escaped and used his bedding as a rope. It's like a medieval story of escape from the castle. He went down the road to a reformed convent that was held in secret. He found care and continued his work. But I just want to point out the birthplace of St. John of the Cross' greatest gift was in his place of greatest pain. It was in the place of isolation, injustice, sorrow, bodily sickness, that he was given the gift of poetry, that then he shared with the world. The good news of the cross of Christ is if the cross can be saved, the world can be saved. If the crucifixion can be made beautiful, all things can be made beautiful. I don't know what you're suffering now, but I want to invite you to live by faith. Not the faith that is a kind of power that you hold to do away with pain and sorrow, but the kind of faith where you can entrust your life, yourself, your pain, and your sorrow into the hands of Jesus and let him work all things together for the good. Let him make all things beautiful in time. Amen? Would you stand on your feet with me? We are now going to come and receive communion. Jesus commands us as he offers the bread and the wine in that last supper that whenever we participate in this meal that we should do so in remembrance of him. May this morning, as we receive communion, holy communion, may we remember, bring to our remembrance that Jesus' body was broken and blood was shed, that we might experience wholeness, healing, and new life, that we might remember that he is making all things beautiful in his time. 
Amen. We are going to confess our faith in the Apostles' Creed, confess our sins with a prayer of confession, receive absolution for our sins, and then we're going to come to the table of the Lord, and everyone is invited this morning to the table. Ushers will release you row by row, and you will come down front here, and someone will have a basket of bread, and they will say to you, the body of Christ broken for you, take a piece of the bread. Then another person will say, the blood of Christ shed for you, dip the bread in the cup, and participate in the life of Christ this morning. Let us confess our faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let us confess our sins together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. And it is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. For it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.